everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with the double L team, Lyle and... Lawson. Oh, Lawson, how are you this morning? Oh, yeah, I'm so good. You are I'm so good, good this morning. You are always so good. I am, because I, I get to come here. How can I be unhappy? Like, I'm this is just... true. Some people, some people would look at the hours that you get up in the morning and go, eh, I'd rather sleep in. So usually, okay, this is what I'm actually going for this morning. Yes. Usually, like, because I'm doing radio quite early in the morning, I don't shower in the morning, or at least I don't shower before radio. I'll shower either at nighttime or after radio. Which, which is fine for our listening audience. Mm-hmm. Our listening audience. Oh, Yeah. Not necessarily, not necessarily our oh, staff our audience. In per, in no, 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 trust me. I, I smell good. It's okay. It's okay. No, but this morning, no, I this fun. morning I was like, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna get up early and shower, and it was amazing. Yes. It really woke me up. Like really, you know, just the, the hot water, and then I was even like, before I got out, I was like. All right, I really need to, to zing myself here. And so I put it on cold. Oh! Stood in the shower for another, like, I didn't hot and cold shower. I stood in the shower for probably 15 seconds. It was like 15 seconds shivering. under cold water on a winter's morning, morning. The Ooh. shortest day of the year. Just to, uh-huh. Just to, is the shortest day yesterday or today? I, yesterday. I, I think it was yesterday. Two days ago, two days ago, producer Shell <laughs> is telling us it was two days ago. The days are getting longer. This is wonderful. Yeah, and you're doing cold showers. And yeah, fifteen I was like, seconds. Oh, so good. Just fifteen seconds. Because fifteen oh. seconds at this time of year under the cold shower feels like fifteen years. And I live in an old house too. Like we don't have insulation. Like it uh-huh. is just cold uh-huh. anyway. Uh-huh. And so, dude, it was it was awesome. But that means I'm here. I'm ready to go. Ah, let's go. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Tell us some positively different news. Okay, so I've got some positively different news first, and then I've got some very contentious news to talk about that is positive, but I'm like, is it positive? Okay, we're going to start off with very, very, very amazing news. I'd like to start off with very incredibly amazing news. Uh, check this out. In 2020, um, in the US, the, uh, the record was set for the most charitable donations ever. The most charitable donations ever. $471.4 billion was chari- charitably given in the US. is 5.1% higher than the record that was set in 2019. So this means uh, that you know, this is actually crazy because you know you got to think like uh, charitable giving in times like this would definitely go down because of the hit to the economy, the hit to people's wages, people losing jobs, all these different things. So, it, but it just seems that bam, overnight last year, five point one percent increase, people were in massive need, and charitable giving went up. And five point one percent when we're talking about billions of dollars is a very, very, very considerable amount. That is a massive amount of people making a decision to go and charitably give. Um, giving fi- by foundations increased by 17% uh, to an estimated $88.55 uh, Giving by individuals, this is not... Um, you know, just with corporations, uh, rose only 2.2%. So this actually makes sense to me that corporations would be the ones kind of stepping up and giving more 
during this point uh during during this period even though yeah 2.2 percent represented um you know giving by individuals out of the 471 billion represented 324.1 billion so there's more giving by individuals than by corporations uh but ultimately what we see here is yeah an upturn in something fantastic charitable giving is amazing Giving to people who need it is an amazing thing to do. If you have means and you have the ability to support people with those means, man, do it for a number of reasons. Firstly, like I believe in a God who supports us when we support others. And I have completely experienced that in my own life. That doesn't mean that I'm a very rich person. That means that I am just supported no matter what I do because I'm always, you know, I have the opportunity given by God to be generous with my money. But also the other thing is that you are blessed mentally, it, you know, uh, financially. It, it is like a win, 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 win situation. If you give money to help others, you will be helped. So incredible stuff there. All right, Lyle, time to get contentious. Yes. Are you ready for this? I read a story this morning. It was about coffee, and it was talking about the benefits of drinking coffee. Now, this well, is interesting. Just, that's contentious. That's a load of rubbish right there. <laughs> Because let you know, there is no such thing. <laughs> because neither of us drink coffee. No, never. Nor never do will. we support the the use nope. of coffee. I think it's never going to happen. But I was reading research here that said that coffee drinkers uh, have a twenty one percent reduced risk of co- chronic liver disease, a twenty percent reduced risk of chronic or fatty liver, and a forty nine percent reduced risk of death from chronic liver disease. Yeah, you know why? Why is that? Because you won't live long enough to catch those diseases. Because oh. <laughs> everything else that coffee is going to do to you is going to, going to uh, kill you first. It's, it's actually not so much the coffee. And there's some really interesting uh, research that's come out from uh, particularly Dr. Ross Grant uh, mm. has been doing a lot of research mm-hmm. on this um, that looks at coffee in particular. But caffeine is the real killer. Okay. That's a, that's a really nasty drug. That, that's a type of methyl anxethanine. Mm-hmm. Um, which can, which basically initiates uncontrolled neuron firing in the brain. Um, this excess actively triggers the re- release of adrenaline. The body goes into flight or, fo- flight or fight mode of extreme stress with the body maintained at a high and constant level of stress with a whole bunch of symptoms such as insomnia, nervousness, restlessness, stomach upset, nausea, um, increased heart rate, breathing rate, high blood pressure, etc., etc. How, how much longer do you want me to keep going for? <laughs> I'm just going to smash this one. It was interesting, yeah, because I'm reading through this. Anxiety, panic, panic attacks, mood swings, <laughs> irritability, <laughs> depression. Yeah. Yes. So, so, yeah. Adrenaline exhaustion. <laughs> okay, okay, we can get enough. It was just interesting. I was reading this and I was like, oh, no, because... 49% is a very significant number. That's yes. what it's saying. 49% right. of people uh-huh. who drink coffee are less likely to um, to receive this. I'm like, that's, that's massive. I like those stats about, you know, France where they say that um, they have less heart disease, less people die of heart disease in France because of the high intake of wine. Mm. It's because cirrhosis of the liver destroy, it kills them before they can catch heart disease. <laughs> you know, it's just like... Uh, whatever. Yeah, it's a, and, and that was the thing. I'm, I'm reading through this article and this research that have been done, and I'm like, okay, so there are really positive benefits to the to the liver. That's 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 interesting. And so then I went to, I'm like, okay, well, I'll find like a, a credi- 
credible, you know, world-renowned source, uh, WebMD. I don't know if people mean by that. (laughs) (laughs) But then I was like, okay, let's look at the special precautions and warnings on WebMD. I like WebMD just for the reason that, look, they're not like a peer-reviewed site, but at the same time they use research. Sure. It's like like your medical Wikipedia. Yes. You don't trust everything it says, but it'll sort of maybe steer you in the right direction. And and also you like list all its references at the bottom so you can see whether it's... you can go and check the references. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, you know, and it said, oh, like there are some side effects, but here are special precautions and warnings. People who shouldn't drink coffee. And it says, uh, people who are pregnant, people like children. Yes, because coffee passes through the placenta to the unborn child and it will pass into the breast milk, resulting in addicted newborns and infants. Well, check, check this out. So it's, it's pregnant people, children, people with anxiety disorders, people with bipolar disorders, uh, people with bleeding disorders, people with heart disease, people with diabetes, people who suffer from, you know, diarrhea, if not chronic diarrhea, people with epilepsy, people with glaucoma, people with high blood pressure, people with irritable bowel syndrome, people with loss of bladder control, people with osteoarthritis or osteoporosis. Yeah, because you was, lose five milligrams of calcium for every six ounces of coffee. And I'm drink. like reading this and I'm like, this probably represents like 90% of our population. (laughs) I'm like, oh, so it's good for people who have uh, liver problems, I guess, but bad for literally everyone else. (laughs) So interesting stuff this morning. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. All right. All right, so ye ye on me park, I I do struggle with some Korean names, um, escaped the most repressive nation in the world, namely North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she defected. Um, she was 13 years old. She literally saw people starve to death and fall dead, just Oof. like die uh, from starvation. She crossed the Yalu River when she was 13 into China, where she was sold into slavery by human traffickers. Uh, she was sold for $300. Being a 13-year-old, she was worth more than a mother who was sold for $100. Uh, They were able to escape that and fled into Mongolia where they came in contact with Christian Christian missionaries who helped them cross the Gobi Desert and eventually make their way to South Korea. She finally ended up in the United States studying at the Ivy League Columbia University where she was able to, uh, back in 2015, she was able to publish her life story. Uh, she says that you know North Korea was nuts. It was crazy. Uh, that she believed that their dear leader Kim Jong Un was starving along with the rest of the population because you know communism, equality, everybody's mm. equal. It's just some people are more equal than others. But uh, this was all as a part. You know, and and of course in North Korea there's almost semi emperor worship. Oh, 100%. 100%, yeah. And this is the result of you know brainwashing and uh, not being able to think critically. Now she's studying at Columbia University and she says that, well, that's actually more repressive than North Korea, which is a pretty big call. That's a really big call. Okay. Now, this is not in – she's not talking about, you know, the violence and the – you know, the, the, the bloodshed that happens in North Korea. She's not talking about the starvation. She's talking about the way that thinking is repressed and critical thinking in particular is repressed. You know, things like, you know, reading classical literature uh, was not allowed because the writers had a colonial mindset and were therefore bigots and racists. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can't read in that. And, and, and by reading that literature, you would be brainwashed. And she's like, you know, North Korea was nuts, but 
not this nuts. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So I actually, I came across this person last week as well when they were, because they were in the headlines, like saying these things. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, Because yeah, like as I hear her say that, I'm like at the same time, like you're not even allowed to go on the internet in North Korea. It's an interesting, it's an interesting comparison to make. Mm. I think the repression in uh, the universities is a very different kind of repression that we're having these days, mm. where you're not allowed to express what you're thinking anymore mm. without, you know, and I've talked to quite a number of university students, particularly studying, you know, the humanities kind of subjects, mm. and if they express what they're actually thinking, they get shouted down in class from their lecturers. This is in Australia. Yeah. ANU. Um, shouted down in class from their lecturers and have their marks reduced just for challenging what the, you know, the lecturer might be presenting or what the current ideology might be. Mm. Yeah, I think the tough thing is, is like because like universities can't claim to be a place of education and critical thought. Yes, this is the big difference. Is that like you know North Korea is a is a repressive regime. Through this is, and yeah, through. that's right. We, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And it's and like we have to recognize like people literally. I, I think what I think. Yeah, there. I think what uh, I think the big difference here when it comes to thinking because obviously it's not talking about the starvation or the death or you know anything like that. I think. Way it's it's it really does come down to managing expectations. Mm. You go to a university with the expectation that there is freedom of thought, and when there is not freedom of thought, then it comes yeah. as a massive slap in the Be- face. Because, dude, I totally agree with her in the sense that it's you know in, in these university educations, um, in these particular universities that they're getting shut down and everything for like it's terrible, like it's a terrible thing. Um, but then the, the comparison to North Korea, I'm like, jeez. Oh, but at the same time, she also experienced that, so I can't take that away from her. Um, but yeah, heavy stuff. Anyway, let's move on to a story about religious liberty, one of my favourite subjects to talk about. And uh, <laughs> this time we have Pope Francis standing up strongly for religious liberty. You never thought you'd hear me say that, would you? Oh, Did you? Really? Yes, absolutely. And I absolutely agree with what he is saying. Uh, and this, of course, is the is is the probably the one religious institution on the earth that has the worst religious liberty track record. Uh, but there's a new law being passed in Italy called the Zan Bill uh, that makes it illegal for a church not to conduct gay marriages or facilitate gay adoption or adoption by gay parents, um, or for their schools not to teach gender ideology. Mm-hmm. And so that is pretty repressive. I mean, that's a massive, uh, you know, abolishment of religious liberty in Italy. And the Catholic Church has stood up against it. Uh, a law that intends to combat discrimination, they say, cannot seek that objective through intolerance. Mm. Uh, the opposition leader says, we are against any censorship um, or, 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 or trials for those who believe that mother, father, family are at the heart of our society. And so these are, you know, the people are standing up against us. They're not standing up against and saying, okay, you know, we're, we, um, we're against, uh, you know, same-sex couples or, you know, homosexual people or anything like this. We're not against those people. We are against anyone who tells us that we can't teach that the family unit is the centre of society mm-hmm. and we are against anyone who tells us what we can and cannot do 
in you know whether we whether we are you know forces us to go against the Bible and what the Bible teaches in our churches. Mm. Now, of course, the Catholic Church should be appealing to the Bible on this one, um, and that would make their case a whole lot better. I'm sure that there will be many churches in Italy that will appeal to the Bible on this one and say, "This is you know we this is our sincerely held religious belief. You can't make a law against our sincerely held religious belief." Mm. Really quickly, a uh, great new piece of technology coming out that where they have created a black-footed ferret called Elizabeth Ann, very, very cute, uh, from using um, genetic material from a parent that was uh, born 40 years ago. And this is important because it's a nearly extinct species and they want to reintroduce this nearly extinct species, but all of the ones they have at the moment are either cousins or siblings, which makes the genetic pool very, very weak. And so they've come up with this amazing way of being able to uh, create this this clone mm. from material from 40 years ago, and now they can diversify the gene pool and reintroduce... 40 re- years? Yeah, it's super intense. Did they, did they like... Freeze it? Or? Yes, it was frozen. Ah, okay, okay. It was frozen, and it was frozen 40 years ago. I mean, people were thinking about this 40 years ago, like, let's freeze this for the future. And now they can. <laughs> You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. All right, well, joining us on the phone this morning is David Haupt. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle, and good morning to your listeners. Good to be back. We always look forward to what you have to present to us on the subject of emotional health. And we missed you last week, but you needed to have a break, and we're glad that you got to have a break. Uh, This week, I wanted to raise something that has been sort of stirring around in my mind, and that is Stockholm Syndrome. Now, this is something we often equate to people who have been kidnapped, but not everybody is kidnapped at gunpoint or knife point and locked in a room. Some people are kidnapped emotionally. What can you tell us about Stockholm Syndrome? Firstly, Lyle, Stockholm Syndrome actually comes from a uh, an event that happened in 1973 in, in Stockholm where um, two robbers tried to rob a bank and um, they took captive as hostages uh, four of the bank employees and there was a six-day standoff with the police. And the phenomenal discovery that um, the authorities made after the release of these people that um, they had a positive uh, feeling and association with the robbers at the end and even refused to testify against those robbers. Um, in our DSM-5, our psychiatric Bible, uh, there is no such disorder as called a Stockholm Syndrome. We actually uh, find it as a... Uh, rather a expression that we give to a certain form of symptoms that we see in people that have been through uh, major trauma in their life where they felt that there was no escape available for them and where the captives initially, uh, the, the, the people that were captive felt that their life were on the line and their captives actually treated them kindly in the process. Um, it often deepens, especially when there's a perception that authorities are not doing the right thing. And uh, they start to associate with the people that held it captive. And um, it, we find exactly the same 
uh, experience happening in sex workers or people with domestic violence experiences that very much the, the same symptoms is expressed. I find it remarkable in the original experience where this was sort of first observed or spoken about or named with the bank robbers that this was an effect that happened in six days. That's a very short space of time. I would imagine that when these people were first taken prisoners, they would have been quite, you know, angry at the and antagonistic towards those who were taking them captive. But six days later, and they refused to testify against them in court. Yeah. Normally, our... Uh, our normal reactions are reactions of fear, of terror, of, of anger towards our captives. What we find with the syndrome is that there's a f- constant fluctuation of initially fear of their life being lost. There's no escape, but their captors treated them humanely. Um, it is interesting that it is the, the potential of the syndrome is, high, is, is heightened when uh, there's a perception that the authorities are not doing the right thing, that the police is not doing the right thing. In other words, there starts to form a, a positive feeling towards the captives. There was a study that was done uh, in 2018 amongst sex workers where the sex workers that were uh, held captive by, uh, let's say, a client, and, and they, they feared for their life, that eventually the positive association was to the point where uh, the, the captive actually was hoping that she could have a family with the person that held her captive. In other words, have a marital relationship and live happily ever, ever after. So okay. yeah. some, somewhere in the, the psyche... On the one side, there's the fear, and uh, research that has been done on Stockholm Syndrome indicates that uh, building a positive relationship with the person that has kidnapped the person or is causing the major trauma is a form of survival. So having a goodwill towards that person while they showing goodwill towards them actually will work in their interest. So would this be a situation where somebody holds somebody captive, which is a terrible thing to do, but at the same time they're not going in and you know beating them black and blue every day? They're actually you know giving them you know good food and water and and you know etc etc etc. And so you've got a kind of weird schizophrenic kind of good and bad happening at the same time situation in which survival then I guess becomes based around building a relationship with the person who is abusing you? Is that is that what we're sort of thinking about here? Very true. There's a case uh, that happened in 1998 of Natasha Kampus, uh, where a 10-year-old girl, Natasha, was uh, kidnapped and she was held kept in captivity for eight years. But while there were some beatings that took place and threats to her life, he also brought her gifts he fed her, he bathed her, and um, there was a complete emotional attachment to, to her captive, Wolfgang. And um, when he eventually committed suicide, she was uncontrollably distraught at his death. Um, in other words, uh, she actually 
reacted and responded to that kindness, uh, but perceived that as also a form of, of survival. Does this help us to explain why people today will stay in abusive relationships? In abusive relationship, while there is two components, one, uh, and it's very interesting that research point out that people in domestic violence often will go through very much you know, uh, the Stockholm Syndrome, but there's another issue there as well, and I'll come back to the Stockholm Syndrome very shortly, uh, and that is that I find in therapy, often a wife would say to me, if only I can change myself, and my husband can see my true value, then he will stop beating me, he will actually treat me kindly. In other words, we try to change in order for the other person to be kind towards us. Uh, and, and that is a distorted way of, of looking at things. Um, the research in Stockholm Syndrome also indicated that trauma bonding or battered person syndrome, there's a very clear link between that in a battered person syndrome and uh, uh, trauma bonding, we find a cycle of a remorse versus abuse taking place. So there's a fluctuation. The uh, a husband in an abusive relationship comes and apologizes and is profusely promising that they will change. Uh, and the the wife holds on to that, but what follows then comes the abuse and it becomes a cyclical reaction, and there's a codependency that eventually develops there. When you talk about trauma bonding, what, what exactly is trauma bonding? <clears throat> trauma bonding is where a person in uh, the, the traumatized state actually bonds to the person that is causing the trauma, very similar to uh, Stockholm Syndrome, but what is unique there is that there's the remorse and the abuse that is fluctuating. Where in Stockholm Syndrome, you see that initially there's a life-threatening situation. There is most probably abuse taking place, but then the uh, the person that is the victim starts to associate and takes on some of the ideology and the beliefs that them, sees the unfairness, for instance, of the world out there and associates with the cause of the person that has kidnapped them or have caused the trauma in their life. When we often, when, when, when we look out at the world, you know, we all have our own glasses that we that we look at the world in, through, that we understand the world through. And sometimes, you know, we have that opportunity to make friends with somebody from a completely different background, and we sit down, have a conversation with them, whatever, get to know them, become friends with them, which gives us a completely new perspective when we start to see how they see the world. Is this somewhat of what is going on with Stockholm Syndrome when someone is, you know, taken captive and they're now starting to see the world from a completely different perspective that they've never seen it before and so therefore say, well, you know, this is a valid way of, of considering the world, even though, uh, you know, kidnapping and being kidnapped is a, is a, a, a terrible thing to do. Very, very true. There's a case um, of uh, Patty Hurst in 1974 where she was uh, kidnapped by a militant group in um, in California, and uh, she was held captive. She was 19 years of age. 
And uh, eventually, when this militant group uh, went and robbed a bank, um, she was actually one of the people that were part of the bank robbery, not because she was uh, held at gunpoint, but because she believed in their cause. Uh, she was won over due to their kindness and them sharing their ideology and their belief systems. And she took it on and believed that it was, in actual fact, in her favor to, uh, to be involved with it. She was eventually uh, captured and uh, served a seven-year uh, prison service, but uh, President Jimmy Carter actually stepped in and shortened that period for her. So we often hear about uh, Stockholm Syndrome where people completely take on the ideology. And this is one of the, the factors. It's interesting to note that most people that have been through trauma, most people that have been kidnapped, most people that have been held at gunpoint for, for days on end, uh, there's a significance in face-to-face. Most people do not develop Stockholm Syndrome. So in other words, those people that do develop Stockholm Syndrome, there's that association, that connection, that emotional connection and belief with the ideology of that uh, of, of the captors. Let's talk about the captors very briefly. What's going on with the captors when they take somebody captive, you know, to, take, take some, to deprive someone of their liberty, is an awful thing to do. You've got to be a very cold-hearted person to do that. But then they treat the person with a level of kindness as well. What's going on there? Sometimes um, the intent of robbers, uh, for instance, in the Stockholm uh, situation, the intent was not to take captives. It is a robbery that had gone wrong. And uh, now in order for their own survival to take people, innocent people, captives, and uh, they don't know how to get out of this. In other words, the intent is not to harm people. It's only to benefit themselves. But uh, there's a twist in the the whole situation, and therefore they uh, treat their captives humanely uh, because that was not part of the original plan. Uh, so initially what starts out as a very selfish, self-centered thing eventually goes wrong where other people are caught up in and you find that those people, uh, you know, normally would treat their, their captives, uh, you know, humanely in the process. And because of the long period of face-to-face uh, experience, uh, Stockholm Syndrome develops for that uh for the victims. Mm. Somebody's just texted in, and uh, I'll just read this to you. I'd love to have your comments on it. Stockholm Syndrome reminds me of the world under the control of Satan and the people's attachment to Satan and sin. We're all captivity of Satan and love it until Jesus saves us. Do you think there's an element of truth there? Very much so. Very, very um, interesting observation that, uh, your listeners making and, and very true. We are under uh, captivity at the moment. We are being kidnapped and what is very interesting is that our captor is actually telling us that the main authority, Jesus Christ, God the Father, is in actual fact not good for us. And we start to associate with that belief system and we hear it all over whenever there's uh, natural disasters that happen or calamities that happen, who gets to blame? Mm. Yes. God does. Uh-huh. We call it an act of so we, so we start to associate 
ourselves with the, the one that is held, holding us captive. David Help, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM. Fascinating discussion. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.